We're reading from Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And it's entitled, The Birth of John the Baptist Foretold. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until, this, until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realised he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. We then go to verse 57, where it says, When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name his father Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said, to her, they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. 
Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbours were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Thanks, Robin. And uh, feel free to keep your Bibles open there in Luke 1. Well, from time to time uh, throughout our lives, there are moments when we realise we're watching something special happen. Uh, Sometimes these are big events, uh, things that bring out a crowd, uh, things that everyone talks about. Uh, This past year, I suppose we experienced that with the death of Queen Elizabeth. Um, Some of you will have been alive uh, watching the first moon landing take place. Uh, or maybe when the Berlin Wall came down. These are big events. These are things that stick in the memory, that you look at and go, wow, this is something really special. And other times, these are small events, personal events. Things that only a small group of people on earth care about, but are really special all the same. A family being reunited after being separated through no fault of their own. Friends sharing a holiday together. The birth of a long-awaited, long-hoped-for child. Well, in our passage this morning, uh, we're seeing both these kinds of special events happen at the same time, in the same event and we're seeing an enormously uh, world-changingly important thing take place that is also a small, deeply personal event in a small town in rural, ancient Israel. We're seeing God work in a way that is both uh, His culmination of centuries of history and also an answer to the prayers of an ordinary Every day, husband and wife. Uh, today we're starting uh, another short series, it's a two-part sermon series, and uh, given what time of year, I'm sure you can guess what the subject of the series is. Yes, it's Easter. No, wait, of course, uh, it's Christmas, of course it's Christmas. And I've called this little series, uh, Christmas, the Hinge of History. Uh, This is a phrase that gets thrown around uh, from time to time. The idea is, you think of a hinge, it takes something from here to here. It flips it around, it turns it on its head. So, if you apply that to the history of the world, if something is the hinge of history, it's a momentous event. It's something that flipped the world on its head, that forever changed the lives of everyone who will ever live including you and me. And that's how big Christmas is. And in the first half, so to speak, of this series, 
we're looking at not the birth of Jesus, but of his relative, of John the Baptist. We're not actually sure how closely related they are, Uh, their mothers are described as relatives in this chapter of Luke, and they were certainly close enough that uh, Mary spent about three months in Elizabeth's house while they were both pregnant. But whatever the blood relation of John and Jesus, uh, the more important thing for them, for us, for everyone in all of history, is their spiritual relationship. Because John is the one person that was chosen to make clear the path for the coming of Jesus. His job, his purpose in life, was to prepare people for Jesus. Which, of course, means that uh, the people were unprepared for Jesus. They needed preparing. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be unprepared for Jesus? Well, it means they were unaware of their sin, of their rebellion against God, They were unaware of their need to repent to God of their sin and they were unaware of the promise to forgive sins through the work of the Messiah that would soon come to earth. John's ministry was all about pointing people to these facts so that they would be prepared for Jesus and would accept him and his offer of forgiveness and eternal life. So when we see Zechariah in this passage, blessing God rejoicing when Gabriel says that John will bring a great joy to the people. Well, I think this rejoicing is because Zechariah understands what his son's ministry will be about. He's been told from Gabriel, a messenger of God, and he sees that the coming of the Messiah that John will be preparing people for is a cause for celebration for all people. It's something for us to celebrate because we need to be prepared for Jesus. We need to be told these things about our need for repentance and the offer of eternal life that is given to us through Jesus. So as we go through these verses from Luke 1, I I hope we all come to understand just a bit more how amazing all of this is, why it's something that should cause us to rejoice as we see how God has worked and continues to work in human lives, in a big way and in a personal way, in ways that we expect and ways that we don't, for His purposes and His glory. So, what are we seeing in this story of the birth of John the Baptist? Well, the first thing we see here is that this historical narrative is meant to present to us as very normal. It's not unusual, it's pretty typical in a couple of different ways. Uh, Way number one is that uh, in the opening scene of this story, as it were, if you look at verses 5 to 10, we're given a picture that seems not at all out of place in its time. You know how in a lot of, uh, especially American uh, films or sitcoms, you'll get, uh, that are set in middle suburbia, you'll get a shot of the house where the family lives, You can picture what kind of house it is. It's white, it's wooden, it's got a couple of stories, maybe there's an attic, there's a front veranda, the garden's all very neat and tidy, Uh, there's a letterbox with a hinge that opens up and that red thing on the side that you pull. The point of that shot is to establish this is where you are. 
you are looking in on middle American suburbia. And Luke is doing the same thing in these opening verses. It's like a map with an arrow saying, you are here. You are reading a story in Israel under Herod. There's a priesthood that's been in place for 1,500 years, since the time of Moses and Aaron. And Aaron's descendants are the priests, as they have been all along. Here's an elderly priest, Zechariah, selected to do his priestly duties, which have been passed down for generation after generation after generation. He's going to perform those duties in the temple, which is the location that the original temple had been a thousand years earlier. And here are the Israelites praying outside the temple to God, the one God who they've worshipped for so long. It's all normal. This is how it's been for hundreds of years, ever since Israel returned from their exile in Babylon, and in fact, even further. But there's another way that this is meant to feel pretty typical, and that is that the story as a whole is meant to remind us of the Old Testament, of times when God makes promises and fulfills them, as He always does throughout the Bible. As we're reading along, the parallels with other biblical stories are meant to jump out at us. Here is a faithful, elderly couple with no children, to whom a messenger from God appears, telling them that they will have a son, just like Abraham and Sarah. Zechariah is told by this angel that his son will be strong in the Spirit of God, but has to take vows not to drink alcohol, which is similar to the story of the birth of the judge, Samson. This son has a mother who is barren, parents who pray in the temple, and he is to make vows and be dedicated to the Lord, just like Samuel, the last of the Israelite judges. And we're even told that John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, the greatest of the prophets of Israel. We're meant to be looking at this story and thinking, yeah, I've seen this before. This feels familiar. This is the kind of everyday moment that God continually bursts into, does extraordinary things in throughout the Old Testament. So these Old Testament stories are a forerunner almost to what we see in the New Testament, beginning with John. But before we go thinking that this is just going to be another story like those in the Old Testament, before we start thinking that Israel is just going to keep carrying on as normal, there are some twists in this tale. I don't know how you feel about twists in your stories, whether it's your books or movies or TV shows or whatever. Uh, Sometimes twists can be pretty lame, right? A bad twist can actually make a story completely meaningless, can make it feel like a total waste of time. But a good twist makes you totally rethink everything you've just experienced. A good twist in the tale adds layers 
to a story that you didn't even realise were there to begin with, even though the author did and wrote with those things in mind. A good twist can make a story so much more meaningful. And what we see here is that that's what God is doing in this story. Because God is the author of history. And John is central to his big twist. There's things going on here that are meant to make us go, oh, hang on, this isn't how this normally goes. What's going on here? John's birth is meant to be unusual because John is a full stop. He's a bookend to the history of Israel and through Israel, the history of the whole world up to that point. He represents the end of everything that had come before him and we're alerted to this by these out-of-the-ordinary moments. The first unusual thing that we should notice is what Gabriel says to Zechariah immediately on greeting him. What does he say? He says, Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife will bear you a son. Now, to Zechariah, this seems odd because he doesn't understand. How could an elderly couple like them uh, that has failed to have children, how could they possibly have a son now? But he really should know better because of those stories of his ancestors where that's happened before. The actually unusual thing here is that this is God's response to Zechariah's prayer. Zechariah went into the temple to pray. But those who had the privilege of doing so were doing it on behalf of Israel. The prayer of the priest in the temple was to ask for the forgiveness of sins for Israel as a whole. And most likely by this stage, it also included praying for the coming of the Messiah to save Israel. What's more, it's not even clear that he got to pray before Gabriel appears before him. So how is this an answer to prayer? Well, it's God answering His prayers before He's gotten to pray them, because God knows our hearts. But it's also an answer to prayer long after He's prayed them. Maybe even when He's given up. God isn't limited by time like we are. He's above and outside of time. As the Apostle Peter writes, a day is like a thousand years to him and a thousand years are like a day. And so in this response, God is able to show his great power and his personal love for people, answering multiple prayers in an amazing way that Zechariah doesn't expect. He answers the prayer for a child, probably decades after Zechariah and Elizabeth has stopped praying, stopped believing that it would ever happen. He answers the prayer for a Messiah because John's job is to prepare people for the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah. And he answers the prayer for the forgiveness of the people of Israel because John's ministry shows the way to salvation, the forgiveness of sins through repentance and belief in Jesus. How amazing is that? What an extraordinary God we have to answer prayer in such a layered way. 
combining his big picture for creation with the personal needs of an ordinary couple. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. The second unusual thing we see here is that John is filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Now, for us, uh, it's a basic statement of the Christian faith that anyone who follows Jesus, who believes that Jesus is Lord and Saviour, has the Holy Spirit in them. It's been that way for 2,000 years, since the day of Pentecost. But in the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. The Spirit of God coming upon someone was a rare blessing. Uh, One of my favourite quotes in the Old Testament is from Moses. Uh, He's on Mount Sinai with some of the elders of Israel and God has sent the Holy Spirit Spirit into these men. And when Moses sees the way they all praise God, the things they're saying, he says in Numbers uh, chapter 11 verse 9, I wish all God's people were prophets that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. That's how rare it was. And that's why this promise is so significant. John is a forerunner to all Christians. John has the Spirit in him, even from conception, which is even more extraordinary. Uh, When Elizabeth and Mary meet, we didn't read it, but uh, when they meet while they're both pregnant, John actually leaps in the womb, we read, because he can tell as an unborn child filled with the Spirit, that his Lord, God himself, is right next to him. That's how unusual this event is. Another thing uh, worth pointing out is one that I think is quite easily missed. Uh, I certainly missed it on first reading. Uh, It's in verse 17. Gabriel says that John will go on before the Lord. And this seems like innocuous language, Uh, But again, the story of John's birth is meant to make us think of those that have come before him. And this language is Old Testament language, flipped on its head. In the Old Testament, God goes before his people. Uh, Most obviously, in the Exodus from Egypt, uh, repeatedly in places like Exodus 13 verse 21, uh, Deuteronomy 31 verse 8, we get this language of God going before his people. And yet now, with John, a Jewish man empowered by God, i.e. one of God's people, he will be going before God himself. Why? Well, because God is about to humble himself by becoming a human for the sake of the world. God is entrusting a man to go before him, to make the way for him, just as God has done so many times for Israel in the past, preparing their way before them. Again, he's flipping the script. And one more way we see this happen is in the fact that his name is John. Not so much because of the meaning of his name, John means God is gracious, and that's certainly true from what we see here, right? Uh, His birth is an act of grace towards Zechariah and Elizabeth, his ministry is all about showing God's grace through repentance and forgiveness. But the really surprising thing is that his name isn't Zechariah. By Jewish custom, 
That was meant to be his name. That was the way of passing on the family line. Uh, We read that all his parents, friends and relatives are expecting this boy to have a traditional family name. So when they're together on the eighth day, they're preparing to circumcise the boy in accordance with the law, they're presumably presumably doing uh, what we all do here when there's a new baby for the first time. After the service, what happens? We all go, we gather around, we admire his dimples or how much hair he has or whatever, and say, oh, look at little Zechariah. And then Elizabeth comes in and corrects them and says, no, his name is John. And they're looking at her funny because none of her relatives have that name, it's not in the family. And that's the thing that matters, right? That it's the family name being carried on. So they turn and ask her husband, because surely he hasn't lost his mind. And then he frantically signs for a tablet and he shows them what he's written on and he says, his name is John. And then immediately he can talk, finally, after months. And he starts praising God because his name, his personal family name, that's not important. What's important is what God has done. He's given them a son at their age. And this son is blessed. He has the spirit in him. He's going to do great things. He's going to pave the way for one greater than him to follow him. God himself in the flesh. Jesus Christ. That's what matters. That's cause for celebration. And John's whole life ends up being a testament to what really matters. Because he represents the end of Israel as God's only chosen people. Through Jesus, God's message of grace is opened to everyone from every tribe, every nation, every language. And John never marries. He never has any biological children. The family line ends with him. But it doesn't matter. Because through his ministry of repentance and forgiveness from God, he gains so many spiritual children. Because so many people come to know and believe in God and his grace through hearing his message. God can't make it any clearer. In this time, in this place, he's turning the world upside down. And this should be cause for us to celebrate at what he's done. So when we take a step back from all this, when we look uh, at this historical narrative of John the Baptist's birth and we say, wow, what an amazing story. What should we make of it? When we see that God worked powerfully to do something extraordinary in an ordinary situation, when we see God alerting us to what He's done in this historical event, what do we say? Well, we first acknowledge that this is a historical event. The things recorded here were exceptionally relevant for the people involved, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, in a way that it just can't be for us. Uh, Just like the moon landing was exceptionally important uh, and significant to Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in a way that it can't be for us. But this is a hugely important event for us because it shows us how God 
has shaped history according to his purpose. In fact, we can even say that part of the reason those Old Testament stories took place in the way that they did was so that we would see the significance of John's birth, because of those parallels and because of those differences. History happened in the way that it did for our sake, so that we can look at something like this 2,000 years later and go, wow, how amazing is God? God worked across history so that people would look at John and listen to what he has to say, whether by seeing him face to face or by reading his words in the Bible. And what did he have to say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his ministry, that was his purpose. He knows, he knew his place in history, he knew his purpose was to point us to Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. John is the culmination of the history of Israel as God's people, as God's children, and he directs us to the one who, through his death on the cross, adopts us as God's children as well. What a cause for celebration that is. But this isn't just a big event that shows us God's bigness. This is also a story that shows us how God relates to us personally, how He knows us as individuals who wants us to know Him, who is full of love and grace and humility. This is the God who, as we'll think more about next week on Christmas Day, is prepared to come down to earth as one of his own creation, as a human, Jesus, and who is willing to let one of his creation, John the Baptist, lead the way for him, to prepare his path for him, to even be baptised by him. And this is the God who listens to prayer and answers us even when we've potentially given up. And who can answer our prayers in the most spectacular way, so astonishingly that even a usually faithful follower can still be shocked and in disbelief at the way that He works. This is a God who is faithful to us even when we're unfaithful to Him. This is the God who chooses us individually to be His people, to spend eternal life with Him, who lives with us every day through His Spirit. This is the God who always keeps His promises, as He has shown us most ultimately in His Son, Jesus. And what a cause that is for celebration too. So as we look back at this moment in history, this time when our world changed forever, let us celebrate for what God has done to prepare us for His offer of salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, Heavenly Father, we can't help but look in awe upon the works of Your hands. We can see 
Lord, how you have worked in history in such a big way, such a powerful way, shaping everything according to your good designs. And yet, Lord, we also see that you work in an intimate and personal way. Lord, you know us, you love us, you want what's best for us. And so, Lord, we rejoice in this. We rejoice in you and what you've done for us to prepare us for your son, Jesus, and his offer of eternal life through the forgiveness of sins, through repentance. And, Lord, we ask that you will continue to do your great works, that you would keep preparing people for Jesus, that you would keep bringing the good news to more and more. And, Lord, that you would help us to be a part of that, sharing this good news with others, showing in our celebrations of you just how good you are. Lord, help us to continue trusting in you as we look back and see all the works of your hands. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.